judgment and grace and found it so fascinating as different people wrote and, and solicited responses way back uh, in the springtime, early spring, uh, about uh, this particular topic. And so much of it was around the idea of this, this tension that exists of where's the balance, how much is too much, where's not enough, I, help me understand how to incorporate this into my life. So let's start with this thought. What does the Bible say about judgment and grace? We need both. We need both. So let me be really clear. We need judgment. <gasps> yeah, I said it. All right. And we need grace. See, the, 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 the problem is thinking that these are two opposing forces. They're not opposing. They're complementary of one another. And so while some of you, you're still stuck on, did a pastor just tell us we need judgment? Like, what's wrong with this guy? Doesn't he know what's going on? Doesn't he know that's the very thing that people are constantly harping on about the church and we need to be less judgmental? Yeah, because that's what the world says. I don't care what the world says. I care what the scriptures say. Because what the scriptures tell us is that we need both. See, here's really the issue. Here's really the issue. It is the word judgment carries a connotation with it that, that we don't find in the scriptures. Right? You say the word judgment today. That's a dirty little word. It's like a curse word or a swear word. <gasps> you said judgment. Right? It's like you can't say that. And yet in the scriptures, this is how the word judgment is defined in the Greek. The ability to make considered decisions, to come to a sensible conclusion, to pick, to choose, to select. So question, what in there, in what I just read based on that definition, is inherently evil or bad or wrong? Nothing. You're just making a choice. You're just making a decision. You're, you're looking at a situation and going, well, it has to be A or it has to be B. See, the problem is we've taken judgment and we've associated connotations with it from other items like uh, being harsh or being critical or being condescending, things of that nature. And so we've, we've created something that isn't really in the Scriptures and isn't really what God ever intended Here's the other thing you got to understand about judgment. Almost every statement that you and I make is a judgment statement. Okay, well, Mike, maybe for you that's the case. I'm not one to judge. No, no, you just did it right there. And you didn't even realize it. See, because you made a judgment either about yourself. I'm not one to judge. I'm not worthy. I'm not adequate. I'm not capable of judging, or you made a judgment by which standard you would make the judgment by. I'm not one to judge means I'm not going to use this standard. I'm going to apply this standard over here, which might be my own personal standard. It might be the world's standard. Uh, oftentimes it's someone's feelings about a particular thing. See, because the question that that begs to be asked when it comes to the notion of judgment is by what standard? See, everyone's appealing to a standard. The question is, what standard? Is it the standard that I want? Is it the truth of God's word? Is it what my neighbor says? Is it what my wife says? What's the standard? And so the, the goal today is that we would see this from a biblical lens, from a biblical perspective. What is the standard 
when it comes to both judgment and grace. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 5, let's, let's read the whole chapter um, so we have an idea of what's going on. We referenced it last week. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, here's what Paul tells us, starting in verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, right? That word pornea there, all forms of sexual sin, and of a kind that's not even tolerated or is not tolerated even among pagans. Check this out. For a man has his father's wife. So there's a guy in the church who has a constant, continual sexual relationship that is going on with his stepmom. And somewhere between weird, disgusting, gross, and uh is where we find the church. Verse 2, their response, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, I love verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world, right? Paul still has a sense of humor. Verse 11. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Why don't you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come before you right now. And God, as we, as we move to this, uh, this topic that can be uh, so sticky, can be so controversial, can be such a difficult item in our day and age, I pray that you would just give us unmistakable clarity that we would not be influenced by the world or other people or our feelings, but we would let the truth of your word speak into the reality of where we find ourselves. God, that your spirit would have the freedom to come, to speak, to engage, to encourage, convict, exhort. God, whatever it is that you need to do in, in my life today. Not the person sitting next to me, not my mom, not my spouse, not my child, but in my life. Would you do that? And in this moment where all of us with our eyes bowed and our heads bowed and eyes closed, where we would simply yield ourselves to God and say, God, would you do that? Would you, would, would you allow me to come to a place where you're free to do as you want in me? But God, not only for us, I pray for Pastor Mike Potter and for Foothills Fellowship. I pray for Pastor Mike as he preaches today that you would be speaking through him that your word would go forth in that body of believers and that you'd be honored in all things there. And Jesus, now, 
Would you open our eyes to hear the truth of your word? Would we see it with clarity? Would we know it with absolute conviction? And would we respond appropriately? Jesus, please, 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 would you allow this to be true of us today? We love you, Lord, and pray this in your name. Amen. All right, what does the Bible say about judgment and grace? The title of the message is Why We Need Both. Okay, why we need both, and really the, the crux of the matter is that we need both. Three things, three things specifically that we're going to get at here this morning. Uh, the first, and we're going to spend a lot of our time in this first item because it's so foundational. And so as we move through this, it's going to take us a little while. And then once we get uh, through that, we'll move through the next two items a little bit quicker. Uh, but why we need both, first of all, verses 1 through 5, when judgment and grace come together. When we see judgment and grace coming together, working together, operating together, right? Look at verse 1 and 2. Paul begins to identify the issue that's going on, right? There's sexual morality among you. In fact, so bad was the sexual morality that not even the pagans would allow it, right? In a, in a sexually perverse culture, the, the church was out-distorting, out-twisting, out-sinning the non-believers, in fact, this incestuous relationship, not only was it illegal according to Jewish custom, it was, it was illegal according to Roman law. And the church's response was not one of horror or shock at the sin. It was like, look at how great we are because we tolerate this sin. So when judgment and grace come together, the first thing we see in verses 1 and 2 is this. It's the ability to identify sin. The ability to identify sin, that there would be a judgment, a discernment, a knowledge of the truth to go, that's not right, that's not okay, that's not in accordance with God's word, that's not true. Because if there's no sensible conclusion regarding sin, how are we to know what is and is not good and right and true? If there's no definitive standard, if there's no ultimate authority, it just defaults to whoever has the best argument or the loudest voice. It's what we, this is what we're living in right now, loved ones. It has nothing to do with the ultimate standard. Right? The ability to identify sin. And here, they, they, not, not only did they fail to identify it in this, in this man, but they failed to identify it in themselves. Right? They, they, they were sinful in their sinfulness. Not, not, not only were they not engaging sin, but they were proud in their failure to engage it. Imagine you ran into me at one, some point in time and we began to talk and I began to tell you, you know, I've, I've got a real anger problem. And you're like, oh, okay, well, what, what are you going to do about it? And I said, well, let, let me tell you, you know, when, when I get really angry, I just lose my mind and I go on these obscenity-laced tirades and I just tear people apart with my mouth. Isn't that awesome? And you'd be like, uh, what is wrong with you, right? No, that's... That, 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 that's anything but that. But see, that's exactly what the church was doing. See, look at how tolerant we are of these sinners. Look at how perverse these people are. And we're okay with it. Now, the distinction will come between those who profess to be believers and those that don't. We'll get to that here in a moment. But see, the ability to identify sin. They fail to, uh, to, to, to identify it, right? That only comes with the discernment of God's word, where the, the judgment, the truth, the understanding beginning to speak into this, right? In our day and age, and probably most of us as people, we're really high on grace. We're kind of low on judgment. Let me just say this. Grace doesn't mean a darn thing if we don't have the ability to identify sin. 
If I, if I can't see sin, grace is meaningless and pointless and, and it bears no fruit. All right. So we have to be able to identify sin. That's the first thing that Paul begins to speak into this, right? A judgment concerning sin. Now notice this. Secondly, verse three and four, we see the courage to confront sin. The courage to confront sin. It's one thing to see it. It's another thing to address it. And so look at what he says. Uh, For though absent in the body, I'm present in the spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Right? You could never get away with saying that today. Hey, I'm not there, but I'm pronouncing judgment on you. And they would tar and feather someone like that in our day and age. And yet that's exactly what Paul did because see, he understood the seriousness of what was taking place. But he makes such a bold statement, not because he's the apostle Paul and not because he's this great guy, but look at what it says in verse four. When you're assembled, see, here's where the authority comes in the name of the Lord Jesus. And my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus See, the courage to confront sin, if there's, if there's no standard, if there's no ultimate authority, it becomes really tricky to begin to even address this. Well, that's good for you, Jeannie, but that's not how I live my life. So you do your thing, I'll do my thing, okay? And that's how we would live life. Except that there is an ultimate standard. There is an ultimate authority that God gives us. And so that becomes, that, that, that becomes the, the, the pivot point And the courage meter goes through the roof when it's not me, who I am, what I think. But listen, in the name of Jesus and by the power of Jesus, now I'm speaking into something. Well, the courage meter goes through the roof at that point. Because now it's not tied to who I am or what I've accomplished. It's tied to who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. And Paul's judgment on this man as he's saying this and the way that he says this, says this is he's he's calling the church there in Corinth to respond in kind in the way that he has responded. He's saying, listen, I'm calling this guy out and and something needs to happen. And by implication, you should do the same. It's the same thing that Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 when he says that we should take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead to expose them. It's the same thing we see in Galatians 2 where Paul opposed Peter to his face because the way that he was manipulating and twisting the gospel in, in, in the Galatian church. The courage to confront. The courage to confront. Are you willing to have the courage? Are you willing to confront sin? To speak into it? Right, one, where we would call it out. Two, where we would do so in a right manner. That it would come in the power in the name of Jesus. Okay, okay. I see that I need to do that. I recognize that I should do that. But what does that look like? So the courage to confront sin, does that mean that every time I see sin, every time I see someone doing something, that, that I'm supposed to go to them? Hey, you know, Alan, um, you know, I've noticed in your life, bro, that you're, you're kind of lazy and Proverbs says some things about that. So maybe you should change your behavior. Okay, first of all, uh, none of us are the sin police. None of us wear that badge and are responsible to identify every single sin in someone's life. Uh, Alan is the furthest thing from lazy, which is why I can say that to him. Okay. (laughs) That's a bad idea to function that way. In fact, that's a horrible idea. So let let me give you, let me give you some guidelines, some parameters on how to uh, know when and how and if to speak into uh, sinful matters in people's life. 
Okay, here's the principle. On the majors, on the majors, action. On the minors, acceptance. In all things, love. Okay, on the majors, on the majors, we, we got to do something. We got to act. We, we got to respond to that. O- on the minors, see, one of the things that I love about uh, each and every one of us is we're different. Okay, most of the time I love that. Sometimes it's just super frustrating. Why can't you be like the person I want you to be, not who God made you to be, right? And I'm not alone in that. Y'all feel the same way, okay? Right, but all of us, right, we're, we're, we're different, and, and that's a good thing. And so in, in, in the minors, right, if, if it's not a huge issue, there can be acceptance in that. Okay, well, what makes something major? What makes something require me to speak into someone, someone's life? Here's three things. Three things. First of all, is it crucial? Is it crucial? A crucial issue. If something's not done, if something's not spoken, if something doesn't change... There's going to be massive fallout, massive issues, a great uh, a destruction in someone's life. The name of Jesus being greatly distorted or compromised. A doctrinal error. And by doctrinal error, can we say that your view of when Jesus comes back is probably different than the atonement? All right, we can, we can have some distinction on when Jesus comes back. There's not a lot of room to wiggle over the atonement. So let's make sure we understand uh, the distinctions there. All right, uh, a doctrinal error, um, some form of abuse or manipulation, some massive issue in someone's life, a potential divorce, uh, uh, a grievous decision made in a relationship. If it's crucial, if it's crucial, I don't need to gather more notes. I don't need to get more information. I need to go to someone. Action. All right, second of all, Sometimes it's not crucial. Sometimes it's constant. It's a constant problem. Maybe it's not a huge issue, but it is an issue, and it, and it just continues to happen. Is it constant? Is it constant, continual, chronic? Now, understand the difference between, right, so all of us, all of us will make mistakes from time to time in our lives. All of us will do things that we wish we hadn't. And, and sometimes that's, that's an exception to the rule. At other times, it's characteristic of who we are. That's the very thing that time and time again I've proven myself to be. It's a constant, continual problem. In verse 6, uh, Paul tells us that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Ecclesiastes 9 tells us that one sinner destroys much uh, good. Song of Solomon 2 tells us that it's the little foxes that ruin the vines. It's this constant, continual, chronic problem. Always overworking, always critical of someone, always has a sharp tongue, never seems to forgive. It's time to go. It's time to go have a conversation. It's a constant problem. I need to speak into this. Thirdly, is it close? Is it close? Am I close to the action? Am I close to this? Right, I might tolerate some things uh, with my friends and neighbors that I would never tolerate with my wife or my children. I mean, am I I close to the action? Am Am I close to the action? I'm looking at Brian Levy right now, one of our elders. Brian, we have a pretty good relationship, right? I'm not, I'm not wrong on that. You're not like, no, I can't stand you. <laughs> it's a bad example. 
right? Brian and I have a good relationship. Okay, there's a friendship there. We work together on a number of things. Now imagine I ran into Brian at Walmart one day. And why is it whenever we run, to pe- run into people in a store, we always start scanning their cart like, really, you're going to buy that? You're going to have, you know, right? We... <laughs> but I begin to do that. Right? We, we all do it. Don't laugh and look at me like I'm the only one. I've watched you do that to me. <laughs> right? But, but begin, I, I begin to do that. And I begin to say, you know, Brian, what, you're going to buy that? You're going to spend your money on that? Really? Is that, a, is that a good idea? See, the reality is it's not really any of my business, is it? I'm not close to the action in that situation. Now, if I ran into my wife or a few years later, I ran into one of my children. I'm like, wait a second. No, we're not buying that. That's different. That's in the home. It's an entirely different thing. Right? But the courage, right? The courage to confront sin. Is it crucial? Is it constant? Are we close to the action? Got to be willing to speak up. Got to be willing to speak into one another's lives. Now, no, we're not the sin police. Okay, you're not some Barney Fife with a badge saying, oh, that's your problem and that's your problem. And right here's what people often do. I have the gift of discernment, which now frees me to speak like a moron and be harsh and critical and, and, and condescending. Anyone ever been the victim of that? Right? True confessions. Been the, man, I've, I've had that a few times. And sometimes I'm like, you obviously don't have the gift of discernment because you couldn't be any further from the truth from what you're saying right now. So the courage to speak into it on the major's action, on the minor's acceptance, but right, in all things, love. All right? Let's have the courage to confront sin. Let's have the courage to speak into one another's life and not be so deathly silent on some things that we so desperately need to be speaking into. Then notice this, thirdly, verse 5, really the crux, the whole crux of this issue. The first part of verse 5, I mean, doesn't this sound like something that two teenage boys would say to each other? Right? You're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That sounds like, my my brother's sitting right here, doesn't that sound like something that would be exchanged between us maybe 10 years ago? Right? That's the type of thing, oh yeah, well, I'm going to deliver you to Satan, he's going to destroy your flesh. I mean, that, that sounds like something two boys would say to each other, not an apostle to a church. And yet that's exactly what he says here. And it's like, wow, he's really dropping the hammer. He's really delivering the blow here. But notice, you've got to read the next statement. See, he's willing to go to great lengths so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. See, when judgment and grace come together, we've dealt with the judgment, right? The ability to identify sin, the courage to confront sin. Here's the grace. Here's where the grace comes in. With the purpose of restoration from sin. That's the purpose. Okay, that's the aim. That's the objective. That's the heart of this. Is not to blow someone up. Bam! You got some truth delivered. But it's to see them restored. It's to see them brought back to repentance and being right with Jesus and being right with one another. That's the heart. And loved ones, in in all of our rebuke, discipline, exhortation, challenge, confrontation, this right here, so that, that phrase, that should be the heart of all of it. That should be the heart of every hard word that we would ever speak to someone, not in anger, not in vengeance, not in retaliation, but in a longing and a desire. God, please, would you move and work in them to see them restored and made right? That should be the heart. That should be where we're driven to. Now, let's just be real honest with ourselves for a moment. 
Is that our heart? Is that, let's get real personal, is that my heart? Is that my heart when it comes to delivering the hard word? Is that my heart when it comes to speaking into someone else's life? Because, see, far too often that's not the case. That's not the truth. I think sometimes, sometimes we get so fixated on the I've got to get the truth thing that I miss the grace and the love thing. And some of us, some of us are just a little more wired that way, right? Like how many of you tend to be more of the justice truth type people? Come on, put your hands up, right? And then, and then, so, wow, we got a lot of gracious people here. Y'all are so kind. Thank you. Um, but right, the, the rest of us, we, we tend to, to, to fall to one side or the other. Here's what you got to understand. Truth without grace is brutality. Grace without truth is hypocrisy. They both miss the mark. And see, sometimes, sometimes I just won't speak into a situation because I'm afraid of someone's response. I'm afraid of hurting their feelings. Right? I'm a little more grace-oriented, so I really love the person. But I don't really love them enough because I'm not willing to give them the truth. And then sometimes, sometimes, those of us who are more truth, uh, judgment-oriented, oh, we give them the truth. Right? We hammer them with the truth. It's open wide, let me shove this down. And then we walk away and we're so proud of ourselves. Like, they got all the truth. You're welcome. It's been delivered. I spoke the truth to them. Kind of. Kind of. Maybe from a technical standpoint, you spoke the truth. But from a biblical standpoint, you missed by a mile. Because here's what you've got to understand. You can't have the fullness of truth without the fullness of grace. And you can't have the fullness of grace without the fullness of truth. We think of it as a continuum. And it's really more like a triangle. And I'll, um, I might have to unleash my musical talents for you here in a moment. But for the moment, we'll just use this as an illustration, okay? And so, so, so a triangle in that as you move uh, vertically here, we'll call this truth. As you increase vertically, that's towards the fullness of truth. And over here, as you increase vertically, it's the fullness of grace. Now, here's the great thing. In a triangle, there's only one point where you have the fullness of truth. And there's only one point where you have the fullness of grace. And it's found at the intersection of the two. You cannot have the fullness of truth and be lacking in grace. And you cannot have the fullness of grace and somehow be lacking in truth. It's a fullness of both of them. And, and any, any deviation away from that is not, is not, is not the fullness of grace and truth. And that's what we see John describes Jesus as he was full of grace and truth. It's not a continuum where we kind of move back and, well, I need to be a little more gracious. I need to be a little more truthful. No, we need to be the fullness of both. We need to be the fullness of both. This is what this looks like. A single point. A single point. I just got to ding it one time. I'm sorry. There you go. Musical talent unleashed. All right. The fullness of grace and truth. Because the heart of restoration will willingly take us to that place. It'll willingly take us to that place of the fullness of both. So for those of you who have a little bit harder time with the truth, the most loving thing for you to do is be completely honest. Those of you who have a little bit harder time with the grace, the most loving thing for you to do is be entirely or fully full of grace. 
Now, the, the, oftentimes we'll talk a lot about having uh, the, the, the capacity to speak the hard word, uh, but I think a lot of times we don't talk about how to receive the hard word. So let me just take one moment and talk about that because here I'm teaching us, right? We've got to be willing to speak into other people's lives. Uh, hopefully, if, if we need to respond, that we respond. But sometimes, sometimes you're on the receiving end of the hard word. Sometimes you're the one that has someone speaking a difficult word into your life. So let me just give you a couple of things to help you uh, embrace that in a righteous way. First of all, if someone comes to you with a hard word, consider the source. Consider the source. What's the relationship like? Can I trust them? How long have they known me? What's the depth of our relationship? Have we been here before? Have they proven themselves to be honorable and, 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 and a man or a woman of integrity in my life? Can, can I trust the person who's bringing this to me? Or is it like one of those situations like, I'm sorry, what's your name? You know, you know what I'm saying? Consider the source. Second of all, I think this one's probably the most obvious tell is consider the tone. Consider the tone. What's their posture like? What's their attitude like? You know, they come in there, kind of arms folded, nose up, a little holier than thou, a little condescending nature in what they're saying to you. Or is there a humility in what they say? Because you know what? It's, it's not easy to be the person delivering the hard word either. Sometimes the nervous fidgety is that they're really broken about what they have to say to you. Consider the tone, loved ones. Thirdly, consider the offense. Consider the offense. Is it a minor slight or is it a major offense? Right? Is this some small, petty, inconsequential thing that they're all bent out of shape over? Or is this a big deal? And then further, step back from that and go, okay, from my perspective, I would say that it's a minor slight. It's not a big deal. But is it possible from their perspective where they could see it very differently? And so consider, consider the offense. And you start thinking about some of those things and you begin to realize the truth, right? Proverbs 27 tells us that better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. My wife comes to me. She's going to come to me because she loves me. My family comes to me. They come to me because they love me. The elders come to me. They come to me because they love me and they want what's best for me. Right? And so they speak the hard word into your life. Are you willing to receive that, to hear that, to respond to that? Now, that's very, very different than someone saying, you know, when you made fun of the cowboys in your sermon last week, that really offended me. I don't even know you. And by the way, the cowboys are always fair game. Okay, deal with it. <laughs> consider, listen, listen, listen. Consider the source. Consider the tone, consider the offense, and let that begin to guide how you handle a hard word. All right, judgment and grace, judgment and grace, they, right? When they come together, notice this secondly, and as I said at the outset, well, these will move a little bit quicker. Uh, why judgment and grace come together? Why they come together? And in verse six, 6 through 8, Paul's talking about this leaven, which is really yeast. And, and it, this is steeped in an Old Testament understanding of, of Exodus 13 and the Passover and the people leaving uh, Egypt. And, and the, where they were commanded to purge the leaven uh, from them as they left in haste. And in the New Testament, leaven becomes a metaphor uh, to describe how sin uh, moves through and corrupts uh, you and I. 
So notice this, first of all, why judgment and grace come together, why they need to come together. Verse 6, because sin completely corrupts us. Sin completely corrupts us. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a, check this out, little leaven leavens the whole lump. Right? We're corrupted to our core by sin. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A, a, a bad apple ruins the entire crop. And see, what, what we do sometimes is we go, well, it's just a little sin. It's a minor sin. It's not a big deal. Why do you get so bent out of shape, man? It's not a big deal. It's just a minor sin. Well, here's why I get so bent out of shape, okay? Because I don't think we understand the nature by which sin corrupts us. So we'll say that this jug of water is the whole of who I am. So clean and pure. This illustration's already flawed, right? Okay, but how much food coloring do I got to put in here before it begins to completely alter everything in here? All right, well, just, let's just do two little drops here. I can get the second one out. There we go. Right, and it begins. Notice, I love the illustration because you begin to see it permeate through. Right? Two little drops. Two little drops. Now let's shake it up because that's what sin always does is it shakes things up. Now tell me, is that the same? Not even close. Completely altered. Completely different. A little leaven. A little sin. This is what it looks like, loved ones. And we play games with it and we think, well, well, it's not that big of a deal. No, no, we're corrupted to our core. No, let's leave this out front. I want you to see that. All right. We're corrupted to our core. The entirety of who we are. Why do we need judgment and grace? Well, we need the truth to speak into the reality of who we are. Notice then this secondly, verse seven. Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. And then you, you should probably mark, underline, circle, highlight, whatever you do in your Bible these next four words as you really are. As you really are. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Okay, why? Why am I distinct? Why am I cleansed? Why am I pure? Well, we see at the end of verse 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed because of what Jesus has done. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Right? We need judgment to tell us that sin completely corrupts us. We need grace to remind us that we're purified to be new. That we really are. That we're changed. That when Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. That the old is not uh, slightly removed. Uh, that the old is not just in part of you, that the old is not just a stone's throw away, but the old is, tell me, what's it say? It's gone. It's dead. It's, it, it no longer exists. But the old is gone and the new has come. Right? As John tells us, if, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins and forgive us of all unrighteousness, not some unrighteousness, not most unrighteousness, but all unrighteousness. As you really are, we're purified to be new. Who am I? I'm a new creation. I'm cleansed. I'm the righteousness of Jesus. I'm the righteousness of Jesus. When Jesus Christ looks at you right now, if you're a follower of his, when he looks at you right now, he doesn't see your failure. He doesn't see your shortcoming. He doesn't see your issues. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what he sees. Amen. All right. And because of that, see, grace frees me 
from trying to earn that. It releases me from thinking that I have to work to achieve that. Because what Paul does not say is, hey, I'm calling you to moralism and you need to try harder and be better and do more. He's saying, no, no, be who you really are. Be who Jesus has already made you to be. It's not not about what you've done. It's about what God has already done in you. Right? Judgment, speaking the truth of who I am. Grace, freeing me from trying to earn it. And if I miss that, if I only take one or the other, I begin to cheapen one or the other. If I don't recognize the depth of my sinfulness, it cheapens the depth of God's grace. That's why we need them both. It's why we need them both. Now listen, listen. You can't be that. You can't be that when you harbor sin in your life. You can't be that when you're clinging to, holding to, um, uh, refusing to let go of some sin in your life. We have to cleanse it. We have to get it out. We have to be purified. We have to allow Jesus to do the work that he's already done. So just ask yourself right now, here in this moment, what, what sin are you holding on to? What sin do you refuse to be cleansed of? What what, what thing are you clinging to that's preventing God from allowing you to be the person, not that you want to become, but the person that you already are because of what Jesus has accomplished? God help us that we would be done harboring sin in our life, that we would release that, that we would be, be done with it, that we would let it go and say, okay, God, I'm done clinging to this. Why judgment and grace come together? Because sin completely corrupts us and we're purified to be new. And how desperately we need them both. Finally, this, verses 9 through 13. Judgment and grace played out. Judgment and grace played out. Paul writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, I love his humor, right? Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, because then you need to go out of the world. And he's like, if, if, if I told you to not associate with people who are sinners, uh, you would have to leave the planet, is essentially what he's saying. Uh, he, he got it. He understood it, right? And in verse 10, he says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers. Greedy there meaning that I'm uh, not just the desire for something that's not rightfully mine, but, but the fact that I would be willing to defraud and harm someone to accomplish that, which is probably why we see the word swindler uh, included there. Or the idolaters, right? A worshiper of a false god. But notice here in verses 9 through 13 that as, as Paul's engaging this, he engages two groups of people. He engages those, first of all, who do not profess to be believers and how we're to interact with them. And then he engages those who do profess to be believers and how we're to interact and engage with them. So let's just uh, do what Paul has done for us. Judgment and grace played out. Here's the first thing. Uh, Toward the non-believer, grace. Toward the non-believer, all you and I are to extend is grace. Wait, why only grace? Why not anything else? Well, because look at verse 13. God judges those outside. God judges those outside. It's his job. It's his business. Frankly, he's going to do a way better job than you and I ever could uh, even imagine uh, doing in that regard. It's not for you and I. It's for him. God judges those outside. So toward the non-believer, there's, there's grace. Now, you, you have to understand when it comes to judgment, there's, there's two ways that we see judgment play out in the scriptures. 
that, that there's what I would say the horizontal way of seeing judgment, that, that the judgment that would go on between you and I and, and speaking truth and accountability and things of that nature that we've uh, been talking about for the last while uh, in that regard. And then the second is, is what I would call vertical. And it's the ability and the capacity to condemn someone for eternity. Anyone in the room have the power to condemn someone for eternity? Right? No suckers in the room. No one's going to take that one. Right? Because none of us have that capacity. None of us have that ability that's reserved for Jesus Christ and for him alone. And see, that's part of the confusion is when we think of judgment, we don't understand those two distinctions. So we come to passages that you can't talk about judgment without talking about Matthew 7. Judge not lest you be judged. And how many times, how many times have I heard that verse taken out of context? See, you're never supposed to judge about anything. Okay, well, there's a judgment statement right there. Fail, right? Okay, and, and, and when you read that, what, what Jesus is not talking about is that you and I are never supposed to judge anything or speak into things. What he's talking about is that there should not be a hypocrisy or a double standard in terms of how we engage people. That's why he goes on to say, hey, why don't you take that huge two by four that's sticking out of your face? Why don't you move that first before you go get the speck of sawdust out of your brother's eye? Let's not be hypocritical about this. Let's not hold someone else up to a standard that you yourself are not willing to be held up against. It's a warning to first examine ourselves before we judge. Now, what people often miss, if you go read the rest of chapter 7 and the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes a number of judgments. And he implies that you and I are going to do the same. In fact, we see judgment happening horizontally throughout the Scriptures. You ever read the prophets? What was that? You can't tell me that wasn't anything but a judgment. In fact, oftentimes it's called, I pronounce this judgment against intergroup of people, nation, whatever. How about false teachers? Are we to judge false teachers? We see that all the time. Jesus constantly was making judgments of the religious leaders and others in his day and age. And I think probably the best example, at least that I like to reference, flip over to Philippians 1 real quick. So I think this is such a clear example and the distinction, because here's really what it boils down to. You and I are called to judge fellow believers. Here's the boundaries for this. You can judge an action. You have no business judging someone's motives. You can judge what you see. You can judge an action. You can judge a behavior, something that's tangible. You have no business judging the motive. Because from my perspective, to judge any of you, that would be purely speculative. So notice what Paul says, Philippians 1, starting in verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. It's probably a bad place to be preaching Christ from, but some do that, but others from goodwill. Verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Here Paul's talking about the advance of the gospel and the gospel going forward. And he's saying, listen, there's basically two groups of people. Those that are preaching the gospel for all the right reasons. And then there's this group of people that are preaching the gospel with the intent of really sticking it to Paul. They're like, we're going to stick it to you, man. We're going to go preach the gospel and you can't. Or I don't know what their motive is, but all the wrong reasons. Now notice Paul's response. How easy he could have said, shame on you for preaching with wrong motives. Or how dare you, but that's not what he says. Look at verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, I understand there's differing motives here, but I'm not going to speak into that because it's none of my business. That, 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 that responsibility belongs to God and God alone. 
Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, okay, now I'm going to judge the action. Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He's like, listen, if you do it for all the wrong reasons, but what you're doing is right, I'm for it. And go ahead, keep sticking it to me. That's fine. That's essentially what he's saying. But the action, the behavior is fair game. The motive is off limits. See, that's the thing that often falls apart for us is we think that everything's fair game. And yet oftentimes when you, when you look at the different judgments in the scriptures, it's tied to the action, the behavior, what can be tangibly measured, not the motive. And so toward the non-believer, toward the non-believer, there's grace. I should point out that all of those, <clears throat> all of the different places where we see judgment that I referenced are towards those who would profess to be followers of Jesus Paul makes a couple other assumptions of us here in verse 9 and 10 regarding non-believers. He lets us know, first of all, that we should understand that they're going to sin. We should expect that. I don't know why we would we expect believers to sin. Why would we not expect non-believers to sin? That's craziness, right? They're, they're going to sin. Second of all, he assumes that we're going to be around them. No holy huddles, no separatists, no, um, you can't have anything to do with us. No, he expects that we're going to be around them. And third of all, he expects that we're just going to live in that tension. That we're going to live in the tension of being distinctly different because of the work of Jesus done in my life from those who live around me. That, that, that's the assumptions that he makes there in those verses. See, you and I are to take the world as it is. And we're to live lives as a striking contrast to the rest of the world. Preach it, Caleb, right? Amen to that. Toward the non-believer, grace... Okay, toward the believer, look at verse 11. Toward the believer, and I would say this is towards one who professes to be a believer. There's judgment and grace. He says this, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. He goes on at the end of verse 11, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? How clear is that? For the believer, there's judgment and grace. And yet, haven't we completely flip-flopped these two? We will hammer, we will absolutely hammer non-believers who don't have the Spirit of God living inside of them, who have never professed to follow Jesus, who don't hold to the Scriptures the way that you and I do. We will hammer them, and then we will let sin flourish in the church. No, we love them. We want, we want to see them continue to grow. Never ever speaking into the situation. It's backwards. It's backwards. Yes, full of grace. Yes, full of love. But we've got to speak truth. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? I'm not sure what you want me to do with that statement except outside of saying, it's pretty obvious what we're supposed to do. Unless you think, wait, 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 wait. I, I, wanted, I just want the grace option. That sounds a whole lot better. Can we, can we just do that? Well, no, we can't. One, because the scriptures don't give us that freedom. But two, because God loves us. He wants to make us better people. And that's why people speak into our lives. That's why there's a loving discipline and rebuke and exhortation that takes place. It's because he loves us. Right? God judges those outside. God judges those outside. That's what verse 13. Purge the evil person from among you. Loved ones, can we, can we let God... Do the judgment on the outside? Can we let him do the thing that is reserved solely for him? 
Can we be done expecting people who don't have the Spirit of God living inside of them to live uh, equally or greater measure than you and I who do have the Spirit of God living inside of them? That's, that's such an unfair standard. And can we, can we quit thinking that someone's got to change their behavior before the Spirit of God is going to transform their heart? God didn't operate that way with you. God didn't free you from your sin and then embrace you. God embraced you. And then probably for most of you in the room over, over a series of years or decades has progressively been freeing you from sin. God help us that that would be our heart. What does the Bible say about judgment and grace? Well, it tells us that it's not one or the other. It's a both and. It's a both and. The fullness of grace and truth is found in the fullness of judgment and grace. Right, the judgment, the truth, the discernment to recognize that I'm a sinner who desperately needs a Savior, who's lost and broken without Jesus and the grace to recognize that God provided that for us. God help us that we would see both of these and how they come together. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your infinite provision. God, your incredible goodness and care for us. God, we thank you that you love us enough to speak the truth to us, but that you don't leave us in that desperate state, but that you also love us enough to make provision for us. God, I pray that in the ways in which we engage one another is this, this difficult, tricky topic that we would recognize both the fullness of judgment and the fullness of grace, the fullness of truth, the fullness of grace would be the ways in which we live our lives. God, help us not to be passive in speaking out. Help us not to be fearful in speaking out. God, help us also not to be loveless or cold or harsh in speaking out. God, help us to live in the fullness of both, recognizing that I can't have the fullness of one without having the fullness of other. Help us to recognize that we need both of these. We pray this in your name. Amen.